Welcome to Untangle, the podcast from Meditation Studio. I'm your host, Patricia Carpeth. In this series, we introduce you to real people with extraordinary stories and experts who have devoted their lives to teaching and helping others through meditation. In today's episode, I sat down with Jeffrey Walker, truly one of the great leaders and philanthropists of our time. He has an MBA from Harvard, was previously CEO and co-founder of CCMP Capital, the successor to J.P. Morgan Partners, is the co-author of a book called The Generosity Network, and is on the board of numerous organizations. Jeffrey has an eclectic background in music, finance, and contemplative traditions, and is passionate about bringing mindfulness practices to business, education, and philanthropy. He loves gathering people together to create game-changing solutions to some of the biggest challenges we face today. He's funny, smart, compassionate, kind, and generous. Before we hear from Jeffrey, this podcast is brought to you by Meditation Studio, Apple's pick as one of the 10 best apps of the year. Starting a meditation practice is a great way to kickstart the new year. You can download Meditation Studio in the app or Play Store. If you have questions or suggestions for our podcast or app, email me at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. Now, here's Jeffrey. Jeffrey, it is so great to have you on Untangle today. Thank you so much for being here. Happy to be here. Yeah. So I want to roll back the clock a little bit uh, because you're such an amazing character. I had so much fun researching. I'm a character. <laughs> I had so much fun <laughs> researching about you. You're just an alchemy of so many different characteristics and experiences, and, and you're doing so many awesome things. And I, I couldn't help but wonder like, what you were like as a 10-year-old boy. Where did this all begin? Sure. I was uh, living in Florida. My dad worked for General Electric, and mm. so we moved wherever General Electric wanted to send us. And so we moved to Florida because he worked on the Apollo project. He was a computer programmer. So here I am in Florida, 10 years old, looking up in the sky, watching the liftoffs, which was cool. Um, that was kind of the mid late 60s, and seeing uh, everybody from John Glenn ongoing. And we saw the liftoffs every time. Wow. Um, yeah. And seeing, and I wanted to be an astronaut. I was um, a nerd. Total were, nerd. Were you, I mean, because, you know, you, you have a financial background and a music background, yep. but you also are a very, would you say, a spiritual person? I, my parents were Methodist and then Presbyterian and then moved around and started as a Southern Baptist. Yeah. And I was asking the questions like, you know, life after death, what is that? I was always asking those kind of questions. Um, but because I think my parents were, I guess, eclectic and shopping around to different religions. Yeah. They eventually went back to Southern Baptist, but by that time I had uh, decided that wasn't for me. And uh, Southern Baptist, you're baptized at 12 years old. You have to make the decision. And by that time I'd chosen to open up to other religions. Cause but were you baptized or you were not? I was baptized. never baptized. So you were not because you chose not to be. So it was like interesting saying, I can still make a choice as to mm. what I want to do or be and asking those questions. A long time later, took a course from Joseph Campbell here in New York in the early 80s, and something like this is a study of comparative religion was really fascinating. And it's one of those things where in another life, I might have gone to divinity school. Mm. But I didn't, obviously. Um, but I always thought that was it's fascinating to think about different spiritual cultures and belief systems and what we do have all in common. 
across all of them. And, and you were always seeking. You always had a lot of question and you were always, always inspired. Yeah, my wife always wonders, you know, why do you have to keep growing? You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's just, uh, just, just that, that thing. I always want to know the new next thing or the new way or how to put yeah. things together. You even started to have some realizations when you were in your high school band? No, music. in seventh grade, I was walking in to the band room and said, I want to play music. And the music director looked at me and... You mean you didn't play an instrument? No, he said, okay, great. What do you want to play? You know, and I, I said, uh, you know, what do you think? And he said, well, you're tall, you have braces, you're going to play sousaphone. And I played that and, you know, it was bass, you know, part of the orchestra and I played everything jazz band marching band it was all competitions for you, and or? so I just it felt good to me it felt mm-hmm. like and easy to learn a place to be you know and so here was it was a kind of a nerdish kid you know into math and science and and all these things and um, space and then music somehow just was my people um, it was fun to hang with them and play together and playing in an ensemble had this unique feeling to me mm-hmm. And this was first ignited through observing how you were in bands and ensembles and hearing the different musical yeah. instruments yeah, fit yeah. together. Well, it's all you know. You, you think about your Such own unique man. sound, yeah, and playing that, but you have to listen to others mm-hmm. to be effective in all their sounds, and then you're creating a sound that neither of you could have done yourself by yourself, right? And so that unique combination then has an impact on an audience. And I always thought that was fascinating, you know, this interplay between an ensemble playing, but then also there's people listening. There's mm-hmm. people connecting to it, I hope, um, in a unique way. And being part of that, um, particularly as the bass part, which is the foundational, you know, aspect of yeah, it, saying, so, okay, how can you hold that together? And I find, you know, I've... I'm a bit like a collie dog that way, pulling people. Ah, can we let's, let's play together? Let's come together. And so that stayed with me till today. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm now on the Berkeley College of Music board. I have this really interesting co- coalition we put together with the Grammys to bring music back to all kids across America. So it stayed with me from yeah that seventh seventh grade. And, it, and it's the feeling of meditation. That's what I was going to ask you. It seems like it is the feeling of meditation, that flow that you get into. Can you talk about some of the ways that that's alike for you, music and meditation? Yeah, I mean, I, I first started meditating when I was um, a freshman in college at University of Virginia, forty three years ago. Uh, I majored in business, but, you know, in computers and stuff, but um, particular psychology. So I was always the volunteer because you got extra credit for the courses um, for doing the science experiments. They did a few, and, and some of those taught you about auto- relaxing the body, full body relaxation, mm-hmm. um, and what does that feel like, and how do you do that? Um, and so then I, I, one evening, sat in the middle of a field at the University of Virginia, and was quiet and tried to relax my body, and did something happened, and it was my first, in my opinion, meditation. And it reminded me of the feeling of playing with others as well, mm-hmm. that connected flow, present state, um, and it felt good. And so I started going, hmm, something's going on there, and I started then doing more research and reading more and exploring and <laughs> never stopped. 
and kind of pulling all this together, saying, yeah. who's doing this and what is this? Um, and then you went on to get your undergrad at UVA yep. in accounting? Accounting and computer science. And yep. then your MBA from Harvard. Harvard yeah. And so I find this also interesting. I worked interesting. in a couple of years in, in Houston before Harvard and yeah. doing oil and gas and things. And then at Harvard, I um, said, you know, I love finance. Um, and so specialized in finance. You love finance. Yeah. So it's so interesting that you have all these other like curiosity, curiosities about these bigger questions in life and religion and, and spirituality, if you, if you want to call it that. And at the same time, you have a very grounded side of your brain in accounting and finance. You know, what did that feel like to have all of those different I, I kind of feel like of it was how it all comes together. Mm-hmm. Accounting tries to pull together everything. You know, how do you report that? It's not just the numbers. It's actually how do you take a picture of an organization and where it is? Finance says, how do I give the lifeblood of, of funding and other things to an organization so it lives long, so it can achieve its goals? Where is the world going? Mm-hmm. Gee, if you invested today, where's this company going to go? How does it fit? Yeah. Where are the ideas and the new innovations this company is producing that you want to bet on? And then how do I identify a manager who has the ability to pull lots of others together, an ensemble, mm-hmm. to play together mm-hmm. to achieve a goal? And so I'm, I, I've looked back over time and kind of said, this is kind of all connected yeah. it's um, like in its own thinking. way. It's a total system orientation, and I my mind always goes to that. Over time at... Um, J.P. Morgan, yep. did you continue to have all of these other interests? And how many years were you at J.P. Morgan? 20, uh, yeah, 25 years. Mm-hmm. And would you say you were a mindful leader then? Had you studied mindful leadership? I know you've... I hope <laughs> I was. I'm sure I yeah. wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, in the firm, I hope I was open. And, and that's the feedback I get. I yeah. do get that from people that have worked for me in the past, that they take that culture as, as a unique culture for them, and they tried to bring it on to their own organizations that they eventually went to. So um, I'm sure we, we learned, kept learning, kept thinking yeah. about what does it mean to be a good listener, and we had training and trainers come in to think about that. You mentioned that you had your own experience with what you call driven leaders, yeah. leaders that were not mindful, that yeah. gave you that experience of what you talk about as a toxic environment, which yeah. is inspiring, right, to then create the kind of environment that you want moving forward. It's a new leadership mold uh, I think we're all experiencing this mm-hmm. new open, flat structures where people participate. And But yeah. learning through that and seeing some of our CEOs who did not succeed yeah. because they weren't open to other ideas or other people. Will you talk about that a little bit? I'm, I'm really curious about mindful leadership and what it takes to be a you know, a compassionate leader versus a driven leader. Or can you be a compassionate leader and also be driven? And how do you do all of that. Um, yeah, I, mean, we, I, I remember teaching uh, meditation after 9-11 to our group, and, you know, it was a time of high stress. And so understanding that it's not a place of weakness that is this practice of mindfulness that is centering yourself, being present, is actually a s- tools of strength. But it's not generally accepted as that. At least it wasn't. Now I think it's becoming more accepted. So it was seen as a weak skill. Kind of like, well, you see, if you just go sit in the corner and meditate, you must be passive. Mm. Whereas actually it trains the mind to be much more active. 
in a present way to be able to concentrate more effectively, experiencing, you know, the effects of, of a mindful practice. Although I worry about the word mindfulness is meaning too much. Right. Therefore, it means too little. Yeah. It means everything. Yeah. And so um, what is this mind training practice about? When you start talking about mind training, people look at you going, really? You can train your mind? Yeah. Is there science around that? Yeah. And so we started bringing science in. We started showing that there was some science about what goes on with the neurons and what we've done at MIT and what we've done at Harvard. And Do we look for mindful CEOs? Is that a practice? Is mm -hmm. that something that you can look for where they connect with their teams, where they bring in the ideas of a beginner's mind, which is an old Buddhist practice of saying, no matter what I know, I bring it down to zero and rebuild based on what I know and what others know. Well, isn't that a high skill for a CEO to be able to do that with new ideas? There's a lot of unlearning in that process. Definite unlearning and an openness to other ideas. Yeah, and a growth, a really and, growth you know, mindset. There's been a lot of science about the neurons in the brain being closed, particularly mm -hmm. in a political environment where you have your belief system and if some new ideas come through, it's harder to modify your beliefs because you're kind of stuck in that mode and they've measured the brain as what, what fires. So how do you get around that? Mm -hmm. And how do you open up your mind so it that it is open to new ideas? Right, and right. would you be a better investor? Would you be a better manager? I assert, of course. Yeah. And, but what are the characteristics? What are the skills that you're learning? Because, yeah. you know, we talk a lot about meditation, and we're not trying to be a great meditator. We're trying to be more compassionate human beings. In my mind, we're here to reduce suffering of others. Mm -hmm. That's it. And if we're here to reduce suffering of others, how do you prepare yourself to be able to think about that and to do that? But how do you do that without it debilitating you and, you know, having PTSD issues or stress issues because I become you too much? Mm. That's the issues of the Peace Corps or others that are doing the work. And so how do I protect myself but open myself up to others? And that's a compassionate response. Think about that loving kindness. Think about, you know, equanimity, being able to step back and be open to others and accepting to others. Be happy when others are happy. That's a hard skill. Mm -hmm. Somebody else achieves something really amazing, and you to really be happy about what they have achieved without being jealous at all. Or kind of like, gee, I wish I had done that. How do you work on that? Well, that's what a meta practice is. That was a loving kindness practice is. And it also allows you to start thinking, hmm, I can do this practice while I'm out in the world. Right. So instead of always having to be in a dark room or yeah. going on retreat, there's a set of walking practices, loving kindness practices, where you can stand in line yeah. and wish the person ahead of you well. I love that. You know, meditation can be a, such a part of your everyday world. And we have that on our meditation app where we've got meditations for a first date, meditations for standing in first line. First date, that's good. Right? <laughs> meditations <laughs> for long-term relationship. <laughs> right, exactly. Meditations before you are public speaking. You know, but real-life things that can help you sort of reorient yourself in that moment. When I first got associated with contemplation at the University of Virginia, there was a guy, Jeffrey Hopkins, who was teaching um, Buddhism there. And he was a dialogues interpreter, and we were, so I got to know him reasonably well. And I would ask him, I said, so how many times a day do you meditate? And he said, I don't know, 12. 
Really? Wow, 12 times. That's a lot. What is it? Is it one minute? How often? <laughs> Was he saying one minute? And he said, how long does it last? He says, I don't know. There's times where it's long, but uh, on average, it's probably about a minute. He oh, says, because so I'm returning myself mm-hmm. to where I need to be in my life. To reset. So isn't the goal yeah. to live your life in that state, not to go to that state. And so we're training ourselves to live every moment in a more present place in a more compassionate place and you need to remind yourself of how to get there mm-hmm. well he was he's been practicing like for that. 50 years right yeah. and so he's saying yeah. okay well, that's a good goal you know yeah. is to try to do that yeah. and so how are we transferring that i mean i do it when i do yoga right i'm try to become more mindful become more present and yoga was designed for meditation and mm-hmm. that's the reason for yoga mm-hmm. is to return your brain and mind Focus into that breath. more yes. centered state yeah right so why not? Yeah. Let's play with that in everything we do, you know? And, and that's why I love with other people because I, I have a hard time thinking about reading myself if I do self-inquiry without the mirror of another. Yeah. And that reflection of how I'm impacting the other person, I should be learning from. Yeah. I can't do this in a corner by myself. Right. I'm not saying don't. Don't go in the corner by yourself. That's all good, too. Mm-hmm. But it's a combination. And yeah. I think we forget that a little bit, or I think we're all exploring what that means. I think we're exploring what that means. I love what you say about playing with that in the moment because that's when your meditation matters the most is in different moments, right? Uh, you're stuck in traffic. You're angry at someone that you love. you know. And so the way that you respond versus react or taking yourself off of autopilot is a big practice, right? Um, big time. And you talked about, you know, ask about mindful leadership. But as I go to banks, for example, and talk about it, I was with one, uh, one uh, a couple weeks ago. And I said, you know, it depends on what you want to achieve. Do mm-hmm. you want to negotiate better? I go, well, yeah. <laughs> well, this will give you the skill. This will allow you to pay attention to what the other person's thinking and doing. This will allow you to observe, to be open to those different, as opposed to just trying to sell your thing, which mm-hmm. is not going to allow you to achieve your goal. Right, right. But how about working in teams? Yeah. You want to work better in teams? This is a lot of the key skills to be able to do that. Right. High listening skills, open awareness, mm. loving kindness with others, caring about them in the room. This is what Google's spending a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. And so this is high skills for organizations of all types. These are tools that can be achieved and allow people to lower, you know, their stress levels mm-hmm. and allow them to take fewer drugs and others, you know, saying, I don't need to do that. I can go to sleep. There's one CEO I was talking to a couple weeks ago, and uh, we were just talking about mindfulness and saying, yeah, I think it's interesting. My HR person tells me I need to do this. And, and I said, I've known it for a long time. I said, so, you know, how you doing? How are you sleeping? He said, it's funny you say that. I haven't slept well for a long time. I said, uh, okay, what do you do to sleep? Do you take Ambien? Yeah, I'll take Ambien. I said, would you like to take less Ambien? Yeah. He said, yeah. I said, okay, so don't worry about all this rest of this mindfulness stuff. I said, why don't you just work on that? Hmm. A month later, he calls me and says, it's amazing. Really? <laughs> I'm taking less. I'm actually getting to sleep. I go, okay, cool. Just from starting his meditation practice? Just from starting a meditation a practice. practice. I love that you're involved in so many of those things. But I think one of the coolest things, because it starts early, is what you're doing with Compassionate Schools Project. 
I, I love that because so many conversations I have with people that are either having an impact in prisons or in hospice organizations or with veterans, I always wonder what if we had these skills as children, where would we be today? So will you talk a little bit about that project and how you're creating that integrated system yeah. of learning, sure, really, sure. reinventing, reimagining learning? I chair the Contemplative Science Center at the University of Virginia, and one of the projects that they have is to work in the Louisville school system with the mayor's support and superintendent's support to say, let's bring tools of contemplation to kids in kindergarten through fifth grade. And instead of selling a program, mm -hmm. we allow the school system to pick the different aspects of tools that are out there in the contemplative world. And it's a mix of mindfulness practice, breath practice, mix of yoga, social-emotional learning, growth attitude, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. and health. And so these kids, three times a week, get access to teachers who teach this. Mm. But we're already seeing effect. And 7,000 kids now mm. are in this program. Like and we have 7,000 controls. Right. Yeah. And after a couple of years, what they've all promised, the school system's promised, is if it shows what it's supposed to show, which kids will stay in school, mm -hmm. they'll learn better, not only test scores, those will be better, but also the teachers will be able to connect to the whole classroom in a more coherent way. And uh, so they've agreed that they will launch it to the entire school system, which is 25,000 kids. And I love how you're looking at it from this big picture point of view and looking at all these different systems and creating these pilot programs. I had um, two fifth graders on our show um, about six months ago with their yoga teacher talking about how much they love the program but how much stress they have. And mm -hmm. they went on and on and mm -hmm. on about their stress levels. And we've had college students who have incredible levels of anxiety, which is one of the biggest problems among college students, huge. huge. And so to have access to these kinds of programs and then the research and the science that is supporting them is is just amazing. I want to shift a little bit now. Sure. I love, I just love what you are doing with your life. It just sort of blows my mind. It's a fast, it's um, a blast. It's great. But you just published a book called The Generosity Network. We you did a little, a little while back with Jennifer okay. McCray called The Generosity Network. And it's class that we teach at the Kennedy School, and Jennifer leads that, and mm -hmm. I guess teach. Um, and then we bring a lot of these ideas out to the world, and it's trying to change the way fundraising is yeah. done. Yeah, but I love what you say about the, the idea is really to bring resources, heart, and money to surround a cause and to create groups of people. I mean, that's another one of your big passions, really, is bringing people together to surround a cause that you're passionate about. So I would love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. I uh, worked on malaria for the last nine years and uh, community health worker strategies, and it's building partnerships to do that. Mm -hmm. And when you build partnerships to do that, the experience is transformational because you're bringing more than just money. If somebody just goes to somebody and says, give me money to do this, and then I'll go do it, and that'll tell you what we're doing with the money, that's really boring. I yeah. want to find things I'm passionate about. I don't know, other people want to hook other people up to their passions. Yeah. And when they do and they find out, oh, you're interested in early childhood too and what kids, you know, are doing or you're interested in, you know, working on in the health global health world, well, can I do that too? Or the oceans or it doesn't matter. And so finding those passions 
and experimenting a little bit and finding others that are also passionate about this is a joy. Mm -hmm. And that experience of itself brings more resources, brings more knowledge. And so if somebody's passionate, like I am about music, and I'm sitting there going, I want to bring music back to all kids across America, seriously, and we're doing this. Now we've got 30 different institutions together. We've got Berkeley. We've got the Grammys. We've got Little Kids Rock. We've got a bunch. we got New York City. we got – so oh, how did you do that? Well, over 10 years – Basically saying, I just want to do this mm. and finding other people who also had the same dream. But to do it effectively, you need, in my experience, a lot of mindful practice. Because a lot of people in the same room aren't the same people. You know, this is being centered, having mm -hmm. high listening skills, being collaborative and kind of experience. Well, I tend to find most people who are good at doing that, putting together these Systems change collaborations, I'll call them system entrepreneurs, have mindful practices. I almost go down the list. You say, well, do you meditate? Well, yeah, kind of I do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You do yoga? Yeah, I, I do. You know, it's like, okay, that's cool. Yeah. Um, something interesting about people who have the skills of being able to unify all of us well, that to go back. after these large issues of the day. And isn't that what we're all trying to figure out? It's no longer about... The government fixing everything. Right. We're all stressed about Trump. You know, what is he going to do? We're literally scared to death. Mm -hmm. But you're sitting there going, how do we start thinking about it? It's not all up to him anyway. Right. Take it's that. not all about – it's all about us and how we're going to unify a whole set of players, nonprofits yeah. and local politicians and senior and ethic academics and business leaders. This is how we went after malaria. And succeeded. And this is how we're going out to community health workers and succeeding. We're working with all those different stakeholders. Mm -hmm. Isn't that getting people to play together? Now, how do you get the people to play together? Do you need to have one individual that is that connector, that magnet, that mindful leader? Or how does this happen? I find um, as a philanthropist that that's the most effective tool I can use is funding Someone who can spend full time being the collaborative glue. You find that person yeah. or help train. Why don't train. we, in my view, train. is what we're working on at the Kennedy School at Harvard, is, is why don't we bring a lot of those skills to these masters of public policy, mid-career, kind of like going to change the world? Well, you don't have to necessarily start up your own nonprofit to do that. Why don't you pick out the problem you want to go after and work with others to address the problem, help bring others together. And so guess what? To be a system entrepreneur, a high skill is not knowing everything. Mm -hmm. You don't have to be the expert. What a great piece of advice, right? You don't have to be an expert. You don't have to know everything. You have to leave. You got to be passionate. Right. You got to be interested. Kind of like, how does that work? <laughs> so you're talking to different people and they're kind of like, this person really wants to know what yeah. I think, you know, or really cares. I think these collaborations only work when you have multiple parties together. Mm -hmm. Figure out how to bring those ideas together to address the problem that we want to go after. Deaths from malaria come down tremendously. Million deaths, million two, down to below 250,000 over a 10-year period. How do we all do that? Mm -hmm. Let's do some more of that. Yeah. Well, it's 
great that you're going to teach these skills through the Kennedy School and through yeah. some other programs because I think that's exactly what has to happen. It's a new mindset in order to change some of these bigger global problems and challenges. And luckily, a lot of people are now sitting there going, hmm, I guess you're right. We have to focus on the system. A lot yeah. of the old standard social entrepreneurs are now looking at it going, I, I know I can't do this all by myself. Right. I have to figure out the larger system. How do I think about that? Now, have you done your Jeffersonian dinner with a lot of these folks that oh, yeah. uh, around the systems change? So just tell our listeners what Jeffersonian dinners are um, because I think that's – you mentioned that. As, I think it's the last chapter in your book. Yeah, this chapter um, in the book about that. And uh, we created this idea at Monticello where I was chairman, um, which is Thomas Jefferson's home. Imagine having dinner with Thomas Jefferson and having all the people at the table that are so interesting. And he was a slightly hard of hearing, and so he wanted a whole table conversation. And we added a few things to <laughs> to the mix of, of that kind of yeah. uh, dinner and idea. But, you know, what if the White House actually had that these days? Right. Wow, that would be kind of interesting where eclectic views or eclectic group of people coming together on one topic. So you know, let's, you know, you do a topic on how do we bring music back to all kids across America? And you have, you know, people coming to the table who have social media experience, who um, had music experience, who are philanthropists interested in this, who are mindful people who are saying this is a great tool to be able to do this, et cetera, et cetera. And let's just have a conversation about that. Mm -hmm. And then let's start with something that's personal. Maybe, you know, what is what? when was the first time music had an important impact on you? And then you talk about that briefly. And then let's talk about the big question about how to bring music back to kids because it had an important effect on you. How do we think about making sure all kids have that? opportunity. And then now what do we do? Mm. So that's the standard process. It's a movement building process. This is what Cesar Chavez did. This is what Obama's used. This is what almost an NRA does, everybody else, you know, get it personal. Mm -hmm. Then what are we all as a team What's thinking about this? And then what are we going to all do together? Ah, now we're unified. Mm -hmm. And so the Jefferson Dare tries to do that. Yeah. And you can have it on many different topics and all sorts of issues. And it's you know, I like, I'm addicted to it because I can't handle, you know, a thousand person fundraiser. Right. But 15 people together for an evening at a table talking about something that, that we're really about. all listening about. <laughs> right. And, and oh my God, oh, how fun is this? Right. One last question because I don't know what else you could be doing because you seem <laughs> to be doing it all. Um, but where do you see this whole mindfulness movement going in the future? Um, I know you're, you sort of, you're, all of the building blocks are yeah, yeah, yeah. in place. But do you have a thought about that? I think we're going to see it as, as a important part of all lives, but that's not the same. Mm -hmm. That we all need to look at what foundation holds us, you know, as humans. Gee, I need to be more compassionate. Mm -hmm. I need to have somebody telling me, you know, you need to work on listening a little bit better. Oh, I, there's a thing for that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gee, what else am I going to work on? And so that's why we've set up, you know, investments in some companies like a Happify and and uh, and others that say, let's allow you to be curated at a place. Wanderlust is the same thing. I can go there and trust them, mm -hmm. so that they can allow me to access different tools I need to experience. You know, this is what yours is. But then I'm going to start seeing, I think, some unification. Mm -hmm. You know, how yes. do the great apps coming together with somebody who's doing a live training experience? Yes. With somebody who's a great set of teachers that you can go on a retreat with, 
or you know somebody who will allow you to build you know a sangha, a group of people that you can talk to, you mm -hmm. know, about your experience. How does that all start to come together? That's the systems thinking. That's what I love about that. Yeah. Thinking about that. I think we're all going to start bottom up. experiencing that a little bit more. I think we have to. Yeah. Right. Well, thank you for being the igniter of that. Um, Great. Yeah, absolutely amazing. Thank and you for doing what you do. Yeah, thank you so much for being here, Jeffrey. All right. Great thank talking you. to you. Thanks so much to Jeffrey for sharing his story. You can get his book, The Generosity Network, co-authored with Jennifer McRae at all major booksellers. Once again, if you have feedback or suggestions for guests, email us at patricia at meditationstudioapp.com. And don't forget to check out Meditation Studio in the app or Play Store. We'll see you next week.